Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In San Francisco, I'm Nathan Fox. With me in Washington, D.C. is Ben Olson. How you doing, Ben? Doing good. It's been a long time. It has been a while. What's it been? About, um, what, six weeks? Maybe longer since we did one of these. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we need to remind our listeners that they can always go back to episode one and listen to 25 hours worth of the old content if they ever get <laughs> bored. That's right. So I don't know if you just got back, but you got back recently, right, from Puerto Rico. And you were there for two weeks or how long? I was in Puerto Rico for a little bit over three weeks. That's the beauty of being an LSAT teacher, um, or at least the beauty of the way I run my life as an LSAT teacher. I don't do a lot of LSAT teaching in December. So I had a bunch of time to kill, and I just decided to go on a bit of an adventure. So yeah, traveled all around the island of Puerto Rico for about three weeks and uh, saw a lot of beautiful beaches. My best day in Puerto Rico, I rented a scooter. I couldn't get a rental car, so I was forced to transport myself on a scooter. Okay. It was awesome. I've, I've never been on a scooter before. You ever been on a scooter before? No, I don't think I have, actually. So it's pretty easy to pick up, I guess. It's just like biking, except for you've got you know an engine. <laughs> and uh, oh, it was awesome. I went all over the place. Now I really want to get one for San Francisco. So if anybody out there, any listeners have any uh, inside tracks on how to get a, uh, what kind of scooter I should buy, I really don't want a fast one. I mean, the one that I rented <clears throat> in Vieques was fast enough that it was scary. So mm-hmm. I really want one that maxes out at about 35 miles an hour because I think that would be perfect for just getting around town. So, yeah, so how fast was scary? The speedometer was broken because it, it is, after all, Puerto Rico. So there was okay. no, mm-hmm. there was no, sp- I did have a helmet, but there was no speedometer on the thing. And it was like country roads, you know, highway, country highway kind of thing to get from one beach to the other beach. And I don't know, I was like going almost flat out. And it was just fast enough where the wind starts hitting you and you're like, oh, no, 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 I don't, <laughs> I don't need to be going this fast, <laughs> not on this thing, not on these roads. I do not yeah. need to be doing this. So anyway, it was really, really fun. And now I'm like obsessed and I'm constantly going on websites and looking at uh, Vespas and other scooters and stuff. Cool. Yeah. Um, uh, that just makes me think of my friend uh, Brent. He, um, he, he got a, a kind of a fast car. And he takes it to um, these like racetracks that are like an hour outside of DC, I think, half hour maybe. And uh, you pay 250 bucks and you go race for a couple hours. And you get an a assistant driver. Have you ever done this or heard about it? Um, I've heard of something kind of similar, but go ahead. Yeah, so you get uh, someone who sits in the car with you and you're just racing around these tracks. And then they give you like pointers. And so they say, you know, you could have taken that turn harder or whatever. And I'm kind of inclined to see the thing is, here's the problem. I have a, I have a Corolla and I told Brent, he's like, it doesn't matter. Just, just go out there. Everyone will pass you, but you can still (laughs) take your Corolla much higher than you would on any road. (laughs) That's funny. Um, I listened to the Adam Carolla podcast and he's a, he's a huge advocate of the Bob Bondurant school of driving. He actually, his wife was just there right now. He sent her there for like a gift. But the way what the, what that is is it's similar. It's like a racing school, except for you actually drive their cars. So they'll like put you in a you know fast like Corvette or whatever. Oh yeah. Um, 
but the deal with that is that they like purposely get you to uh, break traction and stuff oh. and, and then see how you handle it. Or they'll, I think like they purposely have you, you know, slam on the brakes and on a, just a giant like tarmac, you know, where there's yeah. nothing but just you and like cones yeah. and, they, and they know you're not going to flip the car. So you can't possibly hurt yourself. And the same thing as a driver with you. And they like, the idea is like that you become a better, safer driver in cases of emergency or whatever. But you also, I think, do the like blasting around the track as fast as you can thing. Huh. So, yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, sounds kind of, sounds kind of fun maybe. Um, but yeah, anyways, traveled all around Puerto Rico and um, worked on our new Logic Games book a lot, which I think the listeners will be excited to hear about. Um so here's the pitch for that. We are launching, Ben and I are co-writing a book about logic games. We have not yet settled on a title. I think it's going to be thinking LSAT logic games something. We can't go with Bible because PowerScore already took that. I proposed logic games Quran, but I don't know. I think that might get us in a little bit of trouble. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, I hadn't really thought too much about that, but that is a sensitive topic right now. <laughs> yeah, so. I, don't, I don't think that's probably a very good joke. Um, so anyways, Logic Games book for me and Ben coming out later this year. I, I'm, I'm pretty committed to the idea that we can get it launched by uh, the middle of the year or fall probably at the latest. Yeah. We've, we've got about a third of it drafted right now. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be distributing free chapters um, throughout the spring and summer. And if you would like to sign up for that, all you got to do is just go to thinkinglsat.com and join our mailing list. So it's not a it's not a mailing list specifically for the book. It's just the Thinking LSAT uh, newsletter, and we'll be sending out updates about the Logic Games book. I'm I'm pretty sure that it's going to be the best resource that's available on the LSAT Logic Games. What do you think? Yeah. For sure, I think um, the way it's set up, working from like immediately from examples, I think is the most effective way to go. And I'm excited for what we have. Yeah, what's it going to have? Something like what's the number? Something like 80 logic games in there? Maybe a little more, huh? Uh, well, uh, I thought the number was more around 50. Well, it we have 54 in there right now. Oh, and right, right, right. Sorry, I was doing the math wrong. Um, but yeah. we're going to cover all those games between tests 39 and 51, which are the ones that are you can't buy. You can't even buy them on Amazon actually anymore. Um, but even if you were able to buy them somewhere else, you'd have to buy them individually, which are really expensive. They're not in those books of 10. Yeah. So, so they're recent Logic games, but they're kind of hard to get. And um, this will be... A whole big mess of them with really super detailed uh, explanations and diagrams and whatnot. So, anyways, that's our book uh, on Logic Games coming out later this year sometime. Go to thinkinglsat.com and join our mailing list so that you can get updates about that book. And you'll hear more about it on the podcast uh, in future episodes as well. So, today we have a whole list of questions from readers. from posters to our blog and from our super helpful intern, Matt. And uh, I guess we should just go ahead and tackle them. What do you think, Ben? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So here's the first issue that I have. Uh, I'm just going to kind of read, maybe sort of paraphrase, but a reader, a, a student says, 
is there any way to prepare for the experimental section, meaning specifically the mind game aspect of it? In my test, I had a tough time on the second section, which was games. After that section was over, I still held on to the hope that it was experimental. But on section four, I got to my second reading comprehension section, and that immediately deflated me. I never gave the experimental section or the thoughts and emotions that come along with it any thought, and I'm not sure if there is a way to prepare. What do you think? What do you think, Ben? Um, that's a good question. I mean, my initial thought is specifically how could you prepare for this would be to take practice tests in which you have five sections and you don't know which one is experimental. And that's that's not something that you can just do if you go buy your own tests, but if you do go on to cambridgelsat.com, um, they do have five section set tests that you can download, and so you don't know which one is experimental um, until you're done with the test. And maybe one way to prepare for that would be just to experience what it's like uh, trying to predict, or I don't know if I'd actually spend any time trying to predict, but just not knowing for sure which one was experimental. Yeah, that's how you would prepare if you were going to prepare. Um, my advice would probably be get over it. Um, the The truth is, on the day of the test, there are going to be either two reading comprehensions, two logic games, or three logical reasonings. And yeah, if you get two reading comprehensions, then you know one of them is experimental. But I just don't... I don't, I don't know that it matters. I, maybe I'm biased by my own experience, but on my test day, I just didn't give a shit. I, I just, <laughs> you know, I, I was like, oh, instead of doing four, we're going to do five today? Okay, bring it on. I don't care. Give me seven. I don't care. What's the difference? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, one thing is also you can kind of turn this into like a glass half full thing, right? If, if a section, well... Except that that's exactly what Matt was trying to do, and that uh, that's why that's what deflated him. Yeah. yeah, that's why he that's why he got screwed. Because see, the the problem is that he was thinking about it, and what you really should be doing is just answering each question one at a time, and you got to stop the strategy part. You you have to turn off the brain, the, the part of your brain that is calculating what your LSAT score is, or thinking how good you're doing, or how bad you're doing, or mm -hmm. or hoping that the section that you're doing is the experimental section. That, mm -hmm. that part is not, you're not answering the questions. You know, you're thinking about something else. Yeah. So that, that's the problem, I think. That with, I think I used to advise people to do that. Like, oh, well, if you have a bad section, you know, you might be able to just tell yourself the story that that could be the experimental section. So just, you know, pick your chin up and move on. But the problem with that is that then what happened here was he turned to section four, saw that it was his second reading comprehension, and got deflated because he was hoping that he had had experimental games earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and so it's, it's even less about the sections. It's more about the individual question that you're on focusing on that, which I think we've talked about before. You just have to deal with the task that's right in front of you and not think about the whole thing. Yeah. It's super cheesy to say like live in the moment or whatever, but I mean, you really do have to just engage with whatever. It, it, what The past is not important and the future is not important either. What's important is the question that you're working on right now and you just have to answer that one correctly. So what happened here, this actually turns out to be a pretty good disaster, is 
that when he turns to section four and he realizes, oh, it's it's another reading comprehension. Oh, no. Well, the thing is that that section that he's doing does count, right? Mm-hmm. I or, mean, well, you don't know, I guess, because it could be experimental, but it, you just have to assume it will count, right? I think you. it's at least a 50-50 that it's going to count. And mm-hmm. I always thought that the... I, maybe this isn't true anymore. The experimental used to be in the first three sections, right? But now it's maybe sometimes later in the test as well. Yeah, that changed. It was, uh, yeah, that's it was about right. two years about ago. That. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So who knows if it counts or not, but it's 50-50 anyway. And the worst thing that could possibly happen was that this is the real reading comprehension section. And he's starting off the real reading comprehension section with like, oh... You know, yeah, it's yeah. like the exact opposite of what I would want somebody to do. Yeah, I heard a story actually from the June two thousand nine test, and I, I've probably told this story before. But um, in June two thousand nine, well, there was the nasty dinosaurs game. Everybody was hoping that that section was experimental, and the reports from the test were that when people turned to section five and they realized that it was not that that there was not another section of games. Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. there was like an audible in the room, multiple people, there was an audible like, oh no. Yeah. And that just, you know, that that's that makes me laugh because it's like, well, that's okay. You guys are all doing it totally exactly wrong. Because not only did the, you know, the game section, that's in the past and there's nothing you could do about it, but now you have to do this section five and you're starting off section five like you just got kicked in the nuts and that's probably not the best way to start off the section. Yeah. I agree. Okay. All right. I think we covered that one about as good as we can. Moving on. So wait, sorry, Nathan. Oh, one, yeah, let's go, go back. Uh, one thing that I think a lot of people don't know about the experimental section, and I can't remember if we've talked about this or not, but um, when you go take the test officially, I think a lot of people assume that the experimental section happens at the same time for everyone. Oh yeah. And that everyone has the same experimental section, whether that's reading logical reasoning or games. And that's that's not true, just to clarify. The experimental section could be second for you and fourth for the person sitting next to you. And you could have reading comp second and they could be having games for their experimental section fourth. And so there's there's no way there's I mean I don't know why that's important, but people seem to seem to be interested in that. And so that's that's the situation there. And um I was oh, I was gonna say something else, but anyways, yeah. So that's that's actually how you can figure out after the test whether your section, which one was the experimental, because you just find someone who didn't um, have two reading comp sections or two games or whatever. Yeah, the internet has it all figured out like immediately after the test. They're not supposed to talk about it, but people do talk about it. So you can figure it out after the test, um, but you really shouldn't be thinking about it during the test. And yeah, it's worth pointing out that you, the person to your right and the person to your left is probably going to be working on a different section than you are uh, all the time during the test. So yeah. one thing I've heard people get freaked out during section one because they hear, um, you know, like a whole bunch of scribbling immediately, and they're looking at a reading comprehension section, mm-hmm. and they yep. hear a whole bunch of scribbling in the room, and they start freaking out, like, "What? What's going on? What are people doing? Why are people writing? What is this? We're supposed to be reading right now." And it's like, "Well, no, the person right next to you has has games, so yeah. they're they're making a diagram, and you're not." Yeah, and and same goes with page flipping. Like right, people right. turn the page and they think, oh no, I'm behind. It doesn't matter at all, of course. People may be going too fast or they may be on a different section. Right. Yep, yep, yep. Cool. Okay, great. Um, all right, new issue. It says, 
How do I handle post-test emotions? I thought I bombed the test, but I ended up getting 165, pretty much the exact average from my practice test. But I thought I had got one uh, sub 160. Maybe this is just a personality trait, but any tips on how to relax after the test? And then one suggestion I would have, the reader says, one suggestion I would have is to stay off the damn forums. <laughs> I'll second that part. Um, <laughs> what, what else do you want to say, Ben? Um, yeah, so here, let's see, what is this? How do I handle post-test emotions? I would, well, first of all, I would just realize that it, it's, it almost always feels worse than I think it actually is. And the best way to predict your score is to look at um, you know, what your previous practice tests were. That's, that's about where you're going to score. And I think what happens here is I think people, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, but they, they focus in on how one game didn't go well and then they extrapolate that to the section and then the whole test is now doomed to failure. But at the, if a game section is particularly difficult, I've noticed that the other sections in the test tend to be easier. Or if a logical, if a reading comp section is very hard, the other sections seem to be easier to sort of compensate, which is why I think people, when they're prepping, they sometimes see, you know, one section go up and then at the same time the other section goes down and they're saying, oh, I thought I made progress here, but then I lost ground in another section. But that's because the, the inherent difficulty of each section changes from test to test. So you just have to say, my last practice test were probably the best prediction of that. The other thing I think you can do is when you're taking practice tests leading up to the official test is to try to predict your score and you'll start to see that it's very hard to do. And so you shouldn't really rely on it. Yeah, totally. I need to remember to do that. I've got a practice test coming up this Saturday. Um, by the way, you know anybody who's in the Bay Area that wants to come and sit in on my practice tests, uh, I, I would welcome you. You just have to send me an email, Nathan at foxlsat.com, and you can come and uh, meet me and take a practice test with my class. But I need to start doing that. Um, I, I really need to start having people before they start scoring the tests, having people make a prediction so that they can just, because I think the truth is nobody is good at predicting their own score. I mean, I get reports after every single LSAT, I get reports immediately from people who thought they did great and people who thought they did shitty. And they're like, all of them are almost always wrong. They have, they have like no ability whatsoever to, to predict it. Mm -hmm. They get mm -hmm. surprised on the low side and they get surprised on the high side. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think sometimes what happens is sometimes when people um, are starting to really get the nuances of the test, um, they can lose confidence in their answer choices because they're starting to realize, oh, wait, maybe this other answer is actually correct. Whereas when you're super confident, it might just be because you're totally blind to the nuance of that question and you're picking the sucker answer and just feeling great about it. So it's just not, totally. you know, your your confidence is not a good indicator. But I mean, it's just totally. Really yeah, like most of the time, if somebody finishes really early, you know, they might think they might think they did well, but they probably just did terribly. Uh, you know, they they just they were picking B without even reading C, D, and E, and they didn't realize that there was, you know, they just fell right into every single trap, just like you say. Yeah. 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 Um, how to relax after the test? It, 
I would I would certainly say stay off the forums. I can't tell listeners how much bad advice I hear from students all the time. Ben, I'm sure you have the same thing. Yeah. I read so-and-so on the forums, and it's just always wrong. I think that the forums also have a lot of people that are there basically just to rile other people up. You know, um, if you glance at the forums for two seconds, you'll see some asshole on there talking about how they've been averaging 176 on their practice <laughs> tests, and they, that's just completely unacceptable, and they're not going to go to law school unless they can score 178. And it's just like, you know, that that's not good energy for anybody. So, yeah. Um, well, it's totally wrong, and it's a, it's a total, I mean, I can't imagine how many of those people are, you know, telling the truth. It's just all lies. And yeah, stuff. right. It's just lies and bullshit and, and people trolling, essentially. So I, I would I would say definitely stay off the forums. Um, <clears throat> otherwise, how to relax after the test. I mean, you know, whatever it is that you do to relax, anything other than probably reading the LSAT forums is going to be good. Mm-hmm. Um. This actually kind of ties in. We had another uh, request to explain how the curve works on the LSAT. You want to take okay. a crack at it? <clears throat> so I do, but I I am not 100% confident in my thought process. So tell me what you think about this. From what I understand, the curve is set before the test is administered and that they set the curve if you can call it, I mean, not, I know I've read people say it's not a curve, but it's got to be some sort of curve. And from what I understand, that curve is set based on the experimental sections that were administered before the test and used to make up the test. Is that what you understand? Yes, that, that is my understanding. I've heard people say that the, the LSAT is scaled, not curved. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Curved, if, if we define curve as uh, it's based on how everybody else does, and they just say, like, you know, the 50th percentile is going to be a 154 and uh, 90th percentile is going to be a 170, and but that's not how they do it. Apparently, they decide how difficult the test is before they administer the test, and they assign a scoring scale to it based on how difficult they think the test is, and that's based on the results from testing out those questions and logic games and reading comprehension passages via the experimental section. Um, well, so is the diff- I mean, it's still being based on how people, people perform on the questions, but I guess the scaling is determined on an individual question basis instead of on a whole like section? Is that yeah, what you're saying? It, it has to be because they've never administered the entire test, right? They've only administered different pieces of it to different people. Yeah. <clears throat> so... Anyway, they determine the scoring scale in advance. I really, I think they're doing that because they're trying to be fair, um, so that there's no advantage to taking the test in February versus taking the test in June. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I've always thought that that seems unnecessarily complicated because there are there seem to be enough people who take the test every single test administration that you could just curve it, and I think it would be more fair because I feel like there are tests that seem harder than others. Even even after the scale, I feel like there's tests. There are tests that are harder than others. So hmm. I just yeah. don't, I don't know that they do a very good job with that scaling. Yeah, but yeah, that's you know what I mean. Don't don't you have some cohorts like some classes where everyone crashes and burns and everyone has to retake? And it's yeah. like, well, that's because those logic games were nasty and they didn't mm-hmm. adequately adjust for it on the scoring scale. 
Yeah. Well, and, and not just logic games. I mean, I think like the, the difference between test 60 and text, test 61 in logical reasoning, uh, it seems consistently that at least my, when I see students go from that test to 61, they, they do a lot more, uh, wrong in test 61. Uh, and so there's something about those two logical reasoning sections that are harder. Interesting. Yeah, and then the scoring scale. Um, so the scoring scale does shift. I mean, it is it is kind of like a curve. There sometimes a one seventy will be ninety correct, and sometimes a one seventy will be eighty seven correct. Yes. Uh, and that's them saying, "Well, we thought this test was harder, and we thought this test was easier." I just mm -hmm. don't think that the scale. I don't think it changes enough, or I don't think it changes adequately enough. Uh, yeah. I don't think. Yeah, or accurately, I meant to say enough. To really account for the, the the real differences between the difficulties of the test. That said, it's probably only a question or two, one way or the other, that they're off. So maybe I should stop complaining about it. But <laughs> um, I, I'll, I'm sure I will continue to complain. The curve, um, you know, just for super basics, right? The LSAT goes from a low of 120 to a high of 180. You do not need to get every question correct to get a 180. You can sometimes mm -hmm. miss one or even two and still get a 180. To get a 120, to get the lowest score on the test, you would have to uh, either not fill in any bubbles um, or you, you actually would be uh, repelling the correct answers because you have to score less, you have to get less than one out of five correct. Um, and you will get one out of five correct just by ran randomly bubbling in bubbles. So, yep. That's that's the test. One other thing that I like to remind people about the way the curve works is that it, it, since it only goes from 120 to 180, it's a very compressed uh, curve. And so you might think that like three points of improvement between one practice test and another practice test, you might think that that's nothing. But Ben, I'm sure you would say the same that anytime you see someone improve three points you're like holy shit that's great awesome you know all you need to do is do that a couple more times and you're going to be there yeah. so really any any improvement is something to celebrate people don't tend to go backward down the curve um you know you will have random variation of course plus or minus five points on any test but if your moving average has moved up by five points you're you're at a new level of scoring, and you're you're not likely to go uh, permanently back down the scale, even if you have a bad day. Um, so yeah, I guess that's all I want to say about that. You know, the difference between I think a lot of novices don't understand the difference between a one sixty and a one fifty, for example. Mm -hmm. No, it's a huge difference. So like a one sixty four is the ninetieth percentile. One sixty, any you know what percentile it is? I feel like it's around. 70 or so maybe but uh the 150 is lower than the 50th percentile so you've just passed up 20 percent or more of test takers right yeah Fre frequently just you know you get eight more questions right and you get six more lsat points and you just blew past like a third of the field so mm -hmm. people really need to celebrate those small victories and and just kind of scratch and claw for for every single point yep up that curve. Okay, cool. Um, couple more issues, emails from readers. I got an email from a student. I found this to be kind of funny. I'm not going to mention her name because I'm going to kind of poke a bit of fun, but she, I'm going to paraphrase, but she, she sent me an email and said she was struggling 
she had been studying for a while, really working on it. She, she said, I've got the basic strategy locked down, but I'm still struggling with three question types. And those question types are necessary assumption, sufficient assumption, and must be true. And my first question was simply, okay, well, let's just make sure that you've got those basics locked down, like you say. So can you just tell me like in one sentence what your basic strategy is? And this is what she emailed back. She said, oh yeah, sure, no problem. Uh, necessary assumption, you're going to find the conclusion and the support, and then you're going to fill that gap. And on a sufficient assumption, if the answer choice uh, you pick is correct, then without that, the conclusion has no way of working. In other words, she's saying negation test. Um, we, let's just start with those two. So yep. mm -hmm. she said on a necessary assumption, she's going to find the conclusion and support and then fill the gap. Yeah, this is, this sounds like advice for a sufficient assumption. Right. And on sufficient assumption, she said, if the answer choice you pick is right, without that answer, the conclusion has no way of working. And that's clearly the analysis that we would be doing for necessary assumption. That's right. Okay. So, you know, I, I just emailed right back and said, well, you've got those two exactly backward, exactly wrong. So that's, and, and it's, I think it's more common maybe than listeners might think that if, if I, I find this pretty frequently, I'm sure you do too, Ben, where you just ask somebody like, okay, so what's your strategy here? And then they'll, they, they won't really, their one sentence explanation is going to be pretty much wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, and she so then also on must be true, she said, what answer best, sorry, I said, what do you do on a must be true question? And she said, which answer choice best supports the argument? Totally backwards. It's, it's confusing it with the strengthening question, which people actually get mixed up a lot because they use similar wording in the uh, prompt, but they're completely opposite questions. Absolutely. So, right. So she's there. She thinks she's doing must be true analysis and must be true analysis is really, really important because there are so many must be true questions. I mean, especially on the reading comprehension, but there's must be true questions on the entire test. And she was looking for an answer choice that supports the argument that is totally, totally wrong. You need to be looking for an answer choice that is supported by the argument, not something that supports the argument. So I guess I'm just bringing this up because I want to encourage people to go back to basics on the logical reasoning and make sure that they know, they should be able to say in one sentence, they should be able to say what they're looking for. Um, the way I teach necessary and sufficient is I like to remind people that on a sufficient assumption question, you're looking for the one that if true makes the argument win. And on a necessary assumption question, you're looking for the one that if false makes the argument lose. Hmm. I have a whole lesson that I teach on that, uh, you know, with some simple examples, but that's what, when I say, what do you do on a necessary assumption question? I want my student to fire back with, I look for the one that if false makes the argument lose. Yeah. And that's the right answer. Oh, I like, I like that. It's easy to remember. Right. Um, it's interesting because I, do you have this happen a lot I, people? I say, okay, so what's, the strategy for a necessary assumption question. And because it's called a necessary assumption question, they say, well, I'm looking for something that's necessary, which is a good start. But then they think that 
that because necessary itself is such a strong word that the correct answer needs to be really strong. Yeah, right. And I don't, I don't know exactly why that's a very common confusion, but it's exactly the opposite, right? Because when you're looking for what's necessary, you want something that absolutely has to be true. So the weaker it is, the more likely it is that it has to be true. Right. So necessary assumption questions and must be true questions are similar on that. On that, right? They're they're in a, in a lot of ways they're the same thing. A must yeah. be true's question is asking you which one, if the facts above are true, which one is true? And yeah, you would like a more weakly stated answer there. If all else is equal, you're looking for something that is more conservatively stated, weaker language, softer language, qualified. You'd prefer it to say sometimes instead of always, something like that. Mm -hmm. But the same is true with a necessary assumption question. A necessary assumption question is asking you, in order for the argument above to be true, which one of these five things must also be true? You know, which one of these was a missing necessary support for the argument, or which one? Not not necessarily missing, but which one of these five has to be true, or else the argument will fail. And yeah, yeah that's you're looking again. You're looking for weakly, usually all else equal. You're looking for weakly stated, um, soft, qualified kind of answer choice. And then sufficient yeah. assumption is the exact opposite. Where on a sufficient assumption question the correct answer can't possibly be too strong right you you want the biggest possible hammer you want you want the most all else equal you would prefer the answer that says always and um you know if it proves too much there's no such thing as proving too much on a sufficient assumption question right it can have extra extraneous information in there that doesn't hurt anything at all it's just like which one of these five, if we add it to the evidence, will make it so that the conclusion has to be true. Yeah, uh, it's interesting because these uh, we she talked about three question types: necessary, sufficient, must be true, and then we we talked about strengthen because she actually defined uh, must be true as a strengthen question, and that's where she got mixed up. But these four question types are all related in the sense that necessary and must be true. Necessary assumption questions and must be true questions are essentially the same in terms yeah. of asking yourself what must be true. And then sufficient assumption questions and strengthening questions are, are very similar. They're just a matter of degree. In both cases, you're looking for the strongest answer choice that does the most right. to prove that conclusion. Right. The perfect answer for a strengthening question would be a sufficient assumption of the argument. Right. If yeah. if we prove the argument, then you have strengthened it as much as you possibly can. I think strengthening questions are a lot harder than sufficient assumption questions because there's a wider range of acceptable answers for a strengthening question. Right. Sometimes you're just picking. There's five horrible answers, and one of them kind of conceivably strengthens the argument, and then that would be the correct answer on a strengthening question. On yeah. a sufficient assumption question. I can almost always exactly predict the answer, yep. right? The yeah. sufficient assumption question on the LSAT, it's, it's a very specific thing. It's like, which one of these five things makes it so that you automatically win your case? It's sort of, yep. I think about it in terms of like getting summary judgment or something. It's like, which one of these, if you can prove it, or if you can get the other side to stipulate to this fact, you're not even going to have to have a trial. It's just like, here's the facts that are in evidence. Here's the conclusion that we want the judge to reach. If we put we fill in this one missing piece, then we win and it's over. And yeah. that that that's that's the when you get good at those questions, you can almost always just say before you look at the answer choices, and it's important to try to predict it before you do look at the answer choices because you don't want to let those answer choices confuse you. 
But which one of these five, you, you should be able to look at the argument, look at the evidence, look at the conclusion, and you should just be able to say, oh, well, all we need is this one thing. And that will make us win. So I, I find yeah. them to be much easier. I think sufficient assumption questions are much easier than necessary assumption questions. Yeah, so I think part of the confusion is, and I completely agree with what you're saying, but when you say all we need, there's something you know that uses the word need. So I think right. that's part of the confusion sometimes with necessary assumption questions. So what's, what's the difference between what you're saying there and a necessary assumption? Yeah, well, I guess you're right. It's, it, there is a nomenclature thing there that doesn't make any sense, right? On a necessary assumption question, you are not necessarily filling the gap, right? It, sufficient assumption questions are where you're filling the gap. Sufficient means enough. So it's which one of these would provide enough information for us to win our case. Yeah. And if even if it's too much information, that's still fine because that's going to be enough, that's going to be sufficient to make us win. So what's our evidence? What's our conclusion? How do we bridge the gap between those two? And even if we're only trying to go 15 feet, if if the answer is the Golden Gate Bridge, well, that'll get us the 15 feet. And the fact that it's too big doesn't matter. Right on a necessary yeah. assumption question, if we're trying to go 15 feet, we need to go no more than 15 feet. The Golden Gate Bridge is not going to be necessary for this task. Yeah. So uh, the other thing about necessary questions that people don't understand, I think, is that sometimes the necessary assumption will be something that bridges the gap, but sometimes a necessary assumption will be the opposite of a weakener, and it can be something that you had not even contemplated at all. So it, I find necessary assumption questions to be far less predictable than sufficient assumption questions. Oh, I completely agree. For a sufficient assumption, if I haven't predicted the answer, I'm going to sit there and almost force myself to. Whereas a necessary assumption, even if I do predict the answer, when I'm going through them, I'm saying to myself, well, let's just look at each answer choice and say, does this have to be true? Because if it does, maybe it's something that I didn't think of. Yeah. There's so many necessary assumptions. Right. Well, just like there can be infinite weakeners for an argument, I think each one of those weakeners can be phrased as a necessary assumption. Okay. You so elaborate. Uh, sorry. What? So, sorry. Oh, you elaborate. Oh, right. Okay. Um, so let's imagine like a really basic cause and effect argument. Um, like uh, it's it's foggy in San Francisco because of the proximity to the ocean. Okay, that's a cause and effect argument. I'm, I'm, or let, let me phrase it a little bit um, more carefully. It is true, it's a fact that San Francisco is frequently foggy, period. That's a premise. Therefore, or it, it's also true that San Francisco is close to the ocean. Therefore, the fog in San Francisco is being caused by the proximity to the ocean. All right. Okay. Got, mm -hmm. that, there's my argument, right? Yep. Mm hmm. If the question says which one of the following is an assumption required by the argument above, that's a necessary assumption question. And I think that the correct answer, I think there could be a thousand correct answers because there might be a thousand weakeners. So a weakener would be something like, and, and it, it can be bizarre, right? So I like to sometimes talk about the space aliens coming down from Mars. What if it? What if someone you're you know you're trying to prove that it's the proximity to the ocean that causes the fog, right? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. What if someone else was, you know, your opposition said, well, no, actually, it's the space aliens. They come down from Mars and they shoot San Francisco with their ray guns. And that's what causes it to be foggy. Yeah. That's an alternate cause. Alternate cause is a good weakener, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. So, but you could phrase that if you phrased it negatively, uh, it is not true that space aliens come down and shoot San Francisco with ray guns and that's what causes the fog. Yeah. That's a necessary assumption of that argument. Yes. Because if it's not true that the aliens did not come down and shoot their ray guns and cause the fog, then the aliens did come down with their ray guns and cause the fog. Wait, hold on one second. I don't want to get too technical here, but when you go from something that's weakening the argument and saying, uh, this is casting doubt on the conclusion, that's a slightly different standard because I don't know if that's actually a necessary assumption because even if they did come down the, just throw throw the word only into my initial argument okay so okay the the proximity to the ocean is the only thing that causes it to be foggy okay I think, I think yep. that fixes it fixes that the, fix it. The you could have multiple causes sure. right which is right yeah. you can okay. have multiple causes but if the conclusion had been the proximity to the ocean is the only cause then that assumes that there are no other causes so any alternate cause, no matter how far-fetched, including space aliens coming down from Mars, mm-hmm. any alternate cause would devast- would kill that argument. Therefore, you have, even though you had never even imagined space aliens, it mm-hmm. would, it, in LSAT technicality, it would be fair to say you have necessarily assumed that the aliens are not going to did not cause the fog. Yeah. So that's where. I guess I, we should probably cut the discussion off at some point, but I, I, that's where necessary assumption questions can be a lot harder because there could be these infinite weakeners that you've never even thought about before, but if any one of them were true, it might ruin your argument. Therefore, you have necessarily assumed that all of those weakeners are false. Yeah. No, it's a good example. By the way, you know how you said sufficient assumption is all you need? It's yes. the answer... I think I figured out the, the key word there. I think it's I think it's the word all. Because if you get all that Enough. you need, then you filled in that gap and it's sufficient. Yeah, and you might and, and, and more than you need is totally fine, right? The point totally is fine. you need to get all you need to get all of what you need, and if you get more, then that's fine. Yes. Yeah. But if you if you take off that all and you just say what you need, that's not that's going to be a necessary sense. Just to circle back for the listener, I mean, I, the thing that I would I would invite people to memorize is again on a sufficient assumption question, we're looking for the one that makes us win, makes the argument win, and on a necessary assumption question, we're looking for the one that, if false, makes us lose. Yeah, and by win, you're specifically referring to the conclusion. Proves the, the conclusion of the argument to be correct. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, like summary judgment. You know, like you you are going to win just on the the facts that are there. You're going to win for sure, and it's over. The, the conclusion yep. is going to win for sure, and it's over. Necessary yep. assumption is like if it's not true, then it's going to be summary judgment for the other side. Yeah. Right. If if the, your necessary assumption, you're looking for the one that had better goddamn be true, or else the conclusion of the argument is going to lose. But it will not necessarily help you that much. Not at all. So, Because yeah. if I'm trying to prove that the fog in San Francisco is caused by the proximity to the ocean, if you mm-hmm. come in and say, yep, I'm able to conclusively prove that it is not caused by space aliens, well, yep. that doesn't really help me prove that it was caused by the ocean. 
I mean, technically, it does a, a, a small, small bit, right? A tiny, like, minuscule bit. It eliminates yeah. one alternate cause, and it's a super far-fetched alternate cause, right? Yeah. So it's like, no, that you're not really practically closer to getting to your conclusion. But if the opposite of that were true, you would definitely lose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's that. All right. Uh, hopefully, people's heads have not exploded based on that <laughs> conversation. Yeah. All right. We got one more question here. This is from um, Travis, who posted on thinkinglsat.com. Thank you, Travis. Travis is taking the February LSAT, and he said he started out at 151 two months ago. He Not a bad place to start, by the way. He just broke 160 with 71 questions correct. Uh, and he's hoping to get to 87 questions correct, which I guess that's he picked 87 because he's looking to get a 170. That's our speculation anyway. Yep. And he's, hope, he's hoping to go from uh, 71 correct to 87 correct. We think that's going from 160 to 170 uh, in time for the February LSAT. He says he had a major gain in the logic games over the past week because that was his weakest section and he started focusing on that. That's a really good idea. Um, so congratulations on that. And then he said, what's your advice in regards to studying the logical reasoning sections? I usually go over my answers after I take a practice test and I can pick the correct answer right off the bat on the revisit four out of five times on the logical reasoning, but that hasn't translated to a general increase on the tests. So. I think there's a few, a few issues here. Um, maybe Ben, just what would you say to somebody who the, the the average student who says, "I've got three weeks and I want to get from 160 to 170." What would you say? Uh, I would say it seems very unlikely. If that's really if he's if he's really scoring around 160, you know, if it wasn't just like a, a low day, um, ten points for anyone in a, in a couple of months is is a, a challenge in itself, and I feel like. Once you start going up, although you don't need to get as many more raw points, raw you know raw score points to increase your score because maybe only one or two raw score points will increase your score by one LSAT point. Right. They're a lot harder to get because they're the they're the questions specifically designed for higher scores. Yeah, I I would I. I tend to phrase things probabilistically, which is maddening, I guess, to people. My friends and family probably hate me when I do this. But, you know, I would say something like if there were 100 students who were trying to get from 160 to 170 Mm -hmm. in three weeks, how many of those 100 would we expect are going to make it from 160 to 170? And my guess would be 10. Yeah, I, I don't know. A low number. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So the first thing I guess that we have for Travis is um, maybe a bit of a reality check or a bit, I don't know, I guess it's a bit a bit negative. We're both kind of shaking our heads on getting from 160 to 170 in three weeks. That's not to say that it doesn't happen. I mean, it does happen all the time. Um, but for any individual person, it's kind of unlikely to happen. Yeah. I, I would also like to point out, I'm not, I don't know how you... Where, where you stand on this, Ben. I can't remember if we've talked about this before, but I'm not a big fan of specific score goals. Are, are you? Um, 
Well, no, I don't think I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it too much. Um, I often ask people what's the lowest score that they'd be happy with. And then I then go after that score. Cause sometimes I think people have assumptions about what score they quote need to get into a certain school. And that's even more true now with all the crazy acceptances that I've seen. So I feel like I would just try to get the best score you can get. And then, you know, if that's somewhere within the range of what you think you want for the schools you're looking at, then great. Yeah. I think that's a good point that people frequently think they need, they think they need a 170. And today, does anyone need a 170? I don't know, but I, just, I should take a second here to tell you some interesting numbers I've heard. So I just got an email from someone who got a 161, and they got into UVA in Georgetown. That's just wow. one person. Yeah. But I mean, those numbers, are, it, that blows my mind. I was, I felt like historically those were more around like upper 160s, 170s, and, um, or higher. But uh, another person got a 162, and they just got into UVA. I've heard of two people this year who got a 169, both of them. And they both got into Harvard and Yale. So I was like, what is going on? I, I mean, I thought, you know, some people have been saying that the numbers at these top schools, very, very top schools, have actually gone up. But I, I don't know. I don't see that with this anecdote. Yeah, no. I mean, I have plenty of students over the past few years with 160-somethings that are in at Harvard and Stanford and Yale. So I, I just don't... I, I guess if you had really shitty grades, then you might that's think, not, yeah, that's think not you need happen. a 170. But even with really with really shitty grades, it doesn't matter what you get. You can get a 180, and you're still not getting into Harvard, Stanford, and Yale with a with yeah. a shitty with shitty grades. So I don't think anybody needs the 170. And I would ask, yeah, I think I would ask Travis, like, why do you think you need the 170? And then then the other thing I would say is because I see this a lot where I think students who have a goal of 170 or whatever, I think it actually sometimes prevents them from getting to 160 or 165. Yeah, mm -hmm. because, because they're trying to finish or, I'm sorry, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, totally. I mean, if, if 160, Travis says here his 160 was 71 correct. So on that test with that particular scale, his 160 was 71 correct. But a 170 is 87 correct. So to get 170, like you do have to finish, but to get 160, you do not have to finish. And I've just, I've seen too many students on the day of the test get greedy, try to finish the sections and then end up with like a 154. When on their practice tests, they did not get greedy. They were just following my advice and focusing on accuracy and letting the speed happen if it's gonna happen, but not really thinking about the speed too much. And they can consistently get, you know, 164, 165 on a practice test, but then yeah. they sit for the actual thing and they go into like race car mode because they're trying to stretch themselves to get to 170. And that's yeah. really a good way to crash and burn and end up with a 150. Yeah. Isn't there like some Aesop's fable about this? <laughs> <laughs> about like going, like getting something and then going too far? Maybe it's a goose's egg, of course. Right. But he's going to say tortoise in the hair. The hair takes off sprinting and then ends up going to sleep. No? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
But you cut. They try to cut the the goose before the eggs are hatched. Oh, just, killing the goose with the yeah. golden eggs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, I like that. Yeah. So, so maybe right. So, so maybe Travis. When I just would worry that with this goal of one seventy, Travis seems well on his way to a one sixty something. Mm-hmm. And I would be ha- if I were him. I would be. I I just I don't think I would be thinking about the numbers at all. Instead, I would be thinking about activity related goals goal, goals that you can control because you just can't control right the, the goal of 170 that's like me saying oh i'm gonna go out and shoot 500 par today it's mm-hmm. like oh, well that's nice good you know that's a good fantasy to have and it's sure it's theoretically possible but the way that i would shoot 500 par on the golf course is not by going out and having a goal of shooting 500 par it would be having a goal of I'm going to hit the best possible shot that I can hit right now. Yep. Regardless of what happened in the past and regardless of what's going to happen in the future, I'm going to answer this question correctly. Or another form of like an activity goal is I'm going to practice today for two hours. Mm-hmm. And yep. I just think that's so much more useful for somebody to say, I'm going to, I'm going to study LSAT six days out of seven this week. You know, I'm going to do a section, I'm going to do an extra section of logic games every day because logic mm-hmm. games is my weakness and I want to get better there. Yeah. Okay. Um, beyond that, Travis is asking for specific advice regarding logical reasoning sections. What, what would you say there? Yeah, so it sounds like he does what a lot of people do, and that is you take a section, uh, you grade it, and then you go back and you look at the ones you got wrong. I mean, he didn't say exactly what he does, but it sounds like this is what he's doing. Yeah, let me reread it. He says, um, I usually go over my answers after I take a practice test, and I can pick the correct answer right off the bat on the revisit four out of five times on the logical reasoning. But that hasn't translated to a general increase on the tests. All right, go ahead. Yeah, so that's what a lot of people do. And the thing is, especially as you start getting familiar with the test, almost everyone gets it down to... um, the, you know, the two most tempting answer choices. And I, I don't want anyone to feel bad, but I hear it all the time. Like, hey, I'm getting to the point where I'm down between two, and I'm thinking, awesome. That is welcome to the vast majority of test takers. So yeah. most people get it down to the two. And so if you get a question wrong and you go back to it, odds are you're going to get the right answer because it's going to be the one that you were debating between. And that's not always the case. And if, if you're still just like totally lost, Hey, that's a great accomplishment to get down to the two. But um, I would say, as he's going through the logical reasoning section, if if he answers question one and he's totally confident about it, move on. Answers question two, totally confident about it, move on. Question three, feels good about his answer, but it's a little shady about that answer or something else. Maybe, I mean, question three is a little early on, but maybe circle that. And then finish, do the same thing throughout the section. So circle any questions he's just a little shady about. Doesn't feel 100% sure that his answer is correct. Yeah. And then when the timer is done, before grading it, go back and try to figure out, now that the time pressure is gone, can I justify my answer choice? And I would, I would tell people if they have access to tips or strategies related to that question type, for example, we were talking about necessary assumption or whatever, to go reread those strategies before, and this takes a lot of willpower, but before looking up the correct answer, because maybe something about the question type strategies will tip them in favor of one answer choice and another, 
and that's going to be such. I think a, it's going to have much a much greater impact on their future performance than just saying, "Oh, I know this answer choice A is wrong, and therefore, hmm, what is it going to be? Oh, it's going to be D, the second most tempting answer that I was looking at." Yeah, I, I, right. When he said that he could pick the correct answer choice right off the bat four out of five times when he revisits it, I was actually not that impressed by that. I, I was like, really? Only four out of five times? Because I feel like if you're if you're looking at your mistakes and you presumably know what you chose, <laughs> then it seems like there should only be one answer that you could even really make a credible case for, right? Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. you're saying is review before you even correct it. Yeah. I, I like that. I like that a lot. That's awesome. Cool. I, think that's, I think that's a great tip. I, I want to incorporate that if I can. Um, another thing, so one way to, even if you're not doing that, you can still kind of review the questions blindly by doing what you're saying, which is circle the ones that you weren't sure about and go back and review those ones, whether or not you got it right. Yes. And uh, yeah, because that's, that's another big problem, right? As soon as we get it right, we think, oh yeah, I got that. But apparently before you knew <laughs> that it was right or wrong, there was some doubt in your mind about it. And that's exactly what you want to clear up. Right. Um, one thing I do in my classes sometimes is I actually just tear off the answer sheet and then I'll give, I'll give the class a, a 35 minute section, mm -hmm. tear off the answer sheet so that they can't correct it. Yep. And then I have them talk about it, like in small groups, twos or threes or fours. Yeah, yeah. And I find that to be really useful because now, you know, now they have to engage in a different way. It's not just, am I right or am I wrong? It's why am I right or why am I wrong? Because I have to convince the rest of my group whether, you know, that, that this answer really is right. And if someone else has another answer that they like better, then we have to like really engage with that and talk about why it's wrong. Yeah. No, okay. Good. So that's that's good advice, I think, for Travis. Um, I will would also shamelessly plug my logical reasoning encyclopedia. That's the Fox LSAT logical reasoning encyclopedia, which you can find on Amazon. And um, I think that's a pretty hefty workout on the logical reasoning. I, I'm not sure that's going to do Travis much good between now and the February LSAT. Um, it certainly wouldn't hurt, but he's not going to make it through that book either in those three weeks. So that might yeah. be more of a June LSAT kind of a assignment. Um, yeah. Anything uh, else on that? Yeah, I did want to add one more thing. Um, I, in, in logical reasoning, when you're down to two answer choices, it's always possible that the wrong answer, the one that was very tempting but turned out to be wrong, was just a worse answer. But I would say seems to me like in 95% of the cases, that wrong answer is not a matter of degree. It, it wouldn't even work if we got rid of the correct answer. Well, and certainly it, for, for some question types, right? Like on a must be true or on a sufficient assumption question, there's no mm -hmm. such thing as a second best answer. Yeah. But on a strengthened question or a weakened question, then maybe... Yeah, it's certainly possible, and you could have, and there are, and there are some. I just feel like, and maybe, maybe my estimate of ninety-five percent or, or, or wouldn't work is too high. But so many people, when they go back and review a question, and they're debating between two, and then I say, "Hey, so what? What's wrong? You know, what's wrong with D, or what's wrong with A, or whatever?" And they'll just say, "Oh, well, it's it's a it's a worse answer, or it's a better, the, the correct one's better." 
and it, it's I feel like it's sort of a cop out. Like I yeah. think they feel like they understand it, but then it's like, okay, well, what what makes it better if it even is better? And then I think you start making progress in terms of seeing the exact words that tip the balance. This is all about words, yeah. and some words in the passage make a difference, and some don't. And I would say a lot of times the the, the wrong answer is just flat out wrong, and you really need to figure that out. Yeah, that that's right. I think people think that there's a lot more like weighing and balancing that's going on on the logical reasoning than there really is. There's almost always a concrete reason why the wrong answers are wrong. I think you're right on that, Ben. Okay, well, I think that's about it as far as substance. You got anything else you want to talk about? Um, no. I'm just uh, glad we're back and doing this again. So. Yeah, me too. Um, we welcome questions. Obviously, I'm Nathan at foxlsat.com. Ben is ben at strategyprep.com. You can also visit our website, thinkinglsat.com. And when you're there, please join our mailing list. You will get updates from us, and you'll also get uh, free chapters from our Logic Games book. We're going to start distributing those sometime in the spring as soon as possible, and we're excited about that. So if you want to get on the list and you want to start getting some free Logic Games help, um, just sign up at thinkinglsat.com. I think that's about it, huh? Yeah, that's it. All right, Thanks. episode 25 in the books. Ben, we're one-fourth <laughs> of the way to 100. That's right. Cool. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. Talk to you next time. Mm -hmm. Bye. Bye.